Hi, man. Welcome to the intro of Crow 777 Radio Podcast, episode 47. I have Jason Lingren back with me today, and we are going to talk all about telescopes, filming, uh, cameras, and how people can film with whatever they may have to film with, uh, because there is so much interest lately um, that I'm seeing in messages and other places of people wanting to get in and film. Um You know, we're four days away from the equinox here, where I am. Uh, It's the 16th today. I think the equinox, they're announcing that it's on the 20th. I think it's like 6.30 in the morning or something. I'd have to relook. But, you know, that's an indicator that it's going to be warming up for many of us who have to deal with winter. Um, Having said that, I'm going to be out there again. You know, I spent my first year having to take care of family members and things like that. Didn't always have someone around to help me get my equipment, you know, across stairs and out. Um, But I will be filming as it warms up and a lot of other people are, are taking an interest. So that's primarily what we're going to cover here. Uh, In hour two, I will also cover uh, important, what I view as important clips that I've filmed and talked about, talk about them, give the titles and the dates they're uploaded. Um, On YouTube, I will put links to those videos. And I will preface, you know, whenever you're on my channel looking at older clips, you're going to hear a lot of audio that I would flat out change today. Um, In some cases, if you go back far enough, uh, I'm still giving satellites the benefit of the doubt because I'm using satellite maps and uh, still assuming that they're showing me something of value. Um, These things all occurred before I took the time to challenge what I was being presented with and really deduce that uh, there is no there there. Uh, if you have an interest in filming and you only have a camera or you just want to get a camera, this will be a good episode for you. So many people are getting this camera called a P900 that's got really quite an astounding optical zoom on it, um, where when you see the footage, you would think someone shot it with a telescope. And uh, Jason looked it up, I think, four or 500 bucks now for a brand new uh, P900. Uh, I hope I have that right. No matter what you have at your disposal, you could film the sky. Um, Even if you have small telescopes, two, three inches, you can get beautiful views of the moon. And there's almost no camera and no telescope that cannot be coupled together here in the modern era. But anyhow, let's jump in with Jason. This is uh, an exciting time. It's about to warm up. I'm really excited to get my scope out uh, when the snow finally quits and the 20-degree weather finally quits. And my solar scope, I really want to do some work on the sun. You'll hear me talk about uh, the importance of the sun. I think some of the next big uh, leaps forward that we make may well be people filming uh, the sun at rise and set. Anyhow, let's jump into episode 47. I almost forgot. Uh, My new website is almost done, and for members of Crow 777 Radio, what I'm going to do here is when I click over to replace the site that's existing to the new site, I might do something like just put up a home page that says a new site is being launched so I don't have people trying to log in or sign up or do other things while the website is going live. That won't last very long. You know, maybe need an hour or two for that page to be up before we have the whole new system clicked in. And uh, there it is, man. It's going to be great. I have a, a real forum, uh, and it's it's just going to be a much better site, and the security is going to be even better than I have now. So there it is. Cheers. Let's jump into episode 47 with Jason Lindgren. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 47, as has been the usual thing around here. Jason Lindgren is back with me. Um, we decided to do a show that covers telescopic filming, filming without a telescope, and the work that I've done since roughly, 
I don't know, 2012, I think I started filming. I didn't post to YouTube until 2013, late in 2013, actually. I had a lot of good clips that I held on to for, I don't know, almost a year or something like that. But a lot of people are taking an interest. There are people out there filming. As a matter of fact, and I better look to see, I think it's rethinking. Let me look at the channel name real quick here. Rethinking it all channel just caught the lunar wave again. Um, I think this is his second lunar wave. Uh, I will get around to posting that on my channel when I have some time. But a lot of people are really wanting to film. And for those of us who lives where it snows, and by the way, we just got pretty good amount of bad weather here. Um, but as we come into spring, this is the time when a lot of us can start filming again and people are asking, what do we shoot? How do we shoot? What do we need to shoot? Um, and that's what this episode is going to be about. And I will also cover some of the key clips that I've filmed over time. Anyhow, welcome aboard, Jason. Well, hello. How you doing, man? Did you uh, did you guys get pummeled down there by any bad weather? We had a bad rainstorm, and it knocked the weather from 80 back down to 60. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I was sitting here trying to convince everyone it was spring, and then the Weather Channel started fear-porning this big blizzard that we were going to have. Uh, I think we got two, maybe three inches, and it was all rained away. Most of it was rained away the same day. I understand other people did get more snow than that. But uh, we're still waiting for it to warm up so we can start filming. Right. So this is a good setup for folks to be ready to uh, get out there and start doing something with this. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people don't realize, and we will cover this as we go through, um, you don't have to have, you know, an expensive telescope and all this gear. There are quite a few people out there filming with just a camera. But as we go through uh, the things we're going to talk about, we I will talk about what you need to film certain things or with just a camera what you can do yeah i'm actually thinking about um picking up the one nikon that we were talking about a while ago after i pay off the uh, latest addition to my studio <clears throat> which nikon was that i've already forgotten i believe it's i think it's the p900 correct me if i'm wrong yeah i think that that's the one everyone's really getting into because uh the digital zoom is so good and before we jump in just so folks understand the difference between digital zoom and optical zoom um i'm sorry i should have been saying optical zoom just now not digital zoom when you're using optical zoom you're zooming and maintaining quality as good as you can when you switch over to digital zoom i guess the camera's doing math or something but it really degrades the image so when you're using a camera and you are using a zoom function on like a dslr you want to maintain optical zoom um and some of the older cameras i don't know you go about halfway and it goes into digital zoom if you go into that digital zoom mode digital zoom mode you will be messing up your image and really degrading the value in other words it's better to shoot without as tight a zoom as you could with optical than it is to get closer with digital zoom because you you really degrade your your video maybe this will help for noobs out there because i just started looking at this myself my iphone 7 has a really good camera but the only zoom on it is digital so if when you have the camera up and you take your finger and swipe it bigger it's digitally zooming in and you can tell that very quickly it starts to degrade so you're better off just walking closer to the source when i was watching videos on this nikon camera um I'm, I'm going off the top of my head here, but I think it's got an 83 times optical zoom meaning, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that it's actually a physical apparatus. The lenses are doing the work, so right. it's just getting more light. So hopefully that helps people to understand what we're talking about here. That's the way I, as an entry-level person, understand all this. 
Right. That's what it should be when you're talking about optical zoom. And it's hard to know across all camera types. But you bring up, you know, just using a phone um, because the cameras have gotten so good. Uh, I believe it's Richard Parker Channel, who has filmed the Lunar Wave, was using, I don't know whether it was an iPhone. He was using some sort of phone with an HD camera on it. And he was putting it up to the uh, eyepiece of his telescope and getting pretty good results. So, I mean, that even tells you um, that there are probably a lot of people out there listening that have phones where the camera quality is good enough in their phone that they could do something like that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like most phones these days, they have HD cameras. And, um, you know, the, the newest of the new have 4K cameras in them, which is just absolutely incredible to me. But um, anyway, this can get you started really easily. I, I believe the Nikon is somewhere in the five to $600 range. And I've watched a bunch of videos that people were shooting the heavens with. And uh, I mean, it looks like you're, you're shooting with a telescope. It can get so close. Right. And I mean, we'll cover what I started with. I had a uh, Canon T2i um, and, you know, the, what, 16 megapixels or something. The lunar wave was filmed with that. The shooting orb was filmed with that. So much of my early footage was shot with that. And, you know, the P900 is light years uh, beyond in quality. Yeah, it's um, and it's not an expensive investment. Like you don't need a giant telescope, which is I mean, what, what is a good telescope? A thousand plus dollars, I assume, right? Right. You know, and we should talk about that a little bit, too, because um, a lot of scope shops will have used scopes um, and those are a good deal. And uh, we will also talk about if you want to concentrate on the moon, you really don't need a huge scope to film the moon. You know, two, three inches will get you beautiful views of the moon. The issue here is if you get a small scope like that and you really get into it, you're going to outgrow it pretty quick. You're going to wish you had like six or eight inch aperture. Um, but if you have access to an old scope laying around that's two or three inches and you can get a camera on it, that will generally give you beautiful views of the moon. That's awesome. So let's uh, let's get into this then. What what got you filming the skies? What what was the entry for you? Well, you know, my whole life I had wanted to get telescopes and I could never really afford them. And by the time the 90s had come around, I was already out of the Marine Corps. Um, I decided to make an investment. And with money that I'd saved and a credit card, uh, I bought the first robotic 8-inch Mead telescope back when Mead was still producing American-made really good stuff. There was no single event, I think. In a way, there was. In a way, there wasn't. Um, as time went on, I got really interested in astrophotography. I wanted to do these other things. But fast forward all the way up to 2012, uh, there was a night we were watching on a supermoon of 2012. I think it was in May, if I remember correctly. Not sure. Um, we Family members and I witnessed black triangles uh, transiting the moon for, I don't know, two, three hours. And that's really what got me spurred on to get decent equipment, uh, which is when I got the the Canon Rebel T2i um, to start filming. So that was probably the, the main reason that I started filming in the modern era. So were you seeing that with the naked eye? Or were you seeing the, the triangles through uh, a camera of some sort? Naked eye. So we had a 26 millimeter eyepiece. Um, and for those who don't know, when you when you put a camera on a scope and you've got like a monitor, um, most most cameras have an HD out. So you can put just like a regular TV monitor or whatever you have laying around, even a computer monitor. Um, the crisp quality of the image when you're looking through an eyepiece is much, much better. When we were witnessing the endless black triangles transiting from every direction we had a very very good crisp view with a 26 millimeter eyepiece on an eight inch telescope so the view 
the view is staggering because almost everything else I've filmed, of course, has been with a camera on the scope and not my eyeball through an eyepiece. So what you're saying is even with that first telescope you had, you were still getting uh, some really interesting, unusual objects sighted. And um, that would have piqued your interest to be like, wow, I, I, I want more. <laughs> Well, right. Um, after that night, and I don't even know how many we saw, I think it culminated. My brother-in-law claimed he saw like, I don't know, four, five, six, seven of them in formation going by. Um, he was the only one who got to see that because, of course, we were having to share at the eyepiece. Um, I, I knew within a day or two I was getting the things I needed to couple my camera to the scope. But I was thinking the whole time, you know, I'm, in, in a million years, I'm never going to film anything like that. But lo and behold, um, I kept at it. And as everyone is aware, I filmed a number of very interesting things. Yeah. Uh, Black Triangles. I, I know Randy from Houston showed me footage that he had also captured similar such things. So you're not the only one catching this stuff. No. Um, if you search around, you'll find that almost everything I've shot, and this isn't 100% true with with. It, with in regard to things transiting the moon, um, nearly everything I've shot has been captured by other people. There's a clip that I call the boomerang, which I didn't add to the list for this show, um, but that might have been. I don't know. I, I can't remember back whether I shot the boomerang or the lunar wave first, um, but they were right in that area together. And when I shot that boomerang, that's really, uh, really when I started to say I'm going to film all the time. Huh. So what was the first uh, gear you got when after you got the, the triangles you wanted to start filming? What's what's the first stuff you had to make that happen? So I had a Canon T2i that I was using for work because I was working on the web back then. Um, it was 16 megapixels. Uh, those cameras are dirt cheap now. Uh, I think at the time when they were new, um, they might have been three, four, five hundred bucks. I don't remember. But in the neighborhood of what a P900 is, I think. Um, I went out and I got, you need two things to put a DSLR camera on the back of a Schmidt cast grain telescope, which in my view is the best for filming if you have a choice. And one of those is an adapter ring. So you need an adapter ring. If it's a Canon, you get a Canon. If it's a Nikon, you get a Nikon. Then you need what's called a T-ring. At least in astronomy, it's called a T-ring. I actually think camera people call a T-ring what I'm calling an adapter. But So I needed those two little pieces to get my camera hooked up. Um, and that's where it really started. So I had a, a 1990s vintage classic. 8-inch Mead Schmidt cast grain telescope. I would remove the rear cell so there's no eyepiece, and I would couple my Canon T2i DSLR right to the back. So at that point, you're using the camera's viewfinder and screen to be what um, would be taking the place of the eyepiece, basically? Right. So in in most cases, when you have a DSLR doing video, you're looking at that little three inch screen on the back of the camera. And actually, I used that for quite a while before I finally got around to getting a computer hooked up and then eventually went to HD monitors. But for the first, I don't know, many months, I was looking at that little three inch LCD. I, I was doing that when I filmed the lunar wave. I was doing that when I filmed the boomerang and any number of the early transits of the moon. That's how I was filming. So what you're referring to is the the uh, digital outs on a camp. Most DSLRs are going to have uh, some sort of output, usually a mini HDMI, to get some sort of larger screen like a computer monitor, so that you don't you're not tethered to a little tiny screen on the camera, but you can watch in real time on a bigger screen of some sort. 
Right, and almost every modern DSLR will have an HDMI out, which means you just need an HDMI cable and you can go to a computer monitor, an old TV, you know, any of the flat screen modern TV type things. You can go right into them. And what you're basically doing is instead of looking at that little three inch LCD on the back of the camera, now you're looking at a monitor that's whatever size um, you manage to couple. And it makes a huge difference because. When you sit there for hours filming, uh, having a good size monitor really takes a lot of the the work out of it. Well, for one thing, I'm sure it just takes a lot of the strain off your eye because you can you're watching in real time, so you know what you're pointed at, and you're not straining to see details that may be catching your interest. You're watching on the, no matter what, it's going to be much larger than that three inch screen. Absolutely, and and the truth be told, like we're going to talk about the the vortex. Uh, clip that Croet filmed, uh, she would have never been able to see that on the three inch uh, LCD. There's no way. As a matter of fact, when I got the clip and I was reviewing it, uh, the first thing I said to her was, I, I can't believe you even saw this. Um, it's amazing that you even realized you'd captured this. Um, so yeah, it does make a big difference. So after you get to all your equipment hooked up, what was the first big astronomical cool thing you found filmed? So I'm not 100% sure. It's either the lunar wave or the boomerang. Um, I don't remember at this point which came first, and I've changed systems so much I would have to run, you know, try to track whatever the original copy of that clip is and uh, and look at the metadata on it to see if I could deduce that. But uh, the boomerang clip or the lunar wave, and actually, truth be told, by the time I understood that the lunar wave was important, that's probably the the first really big clip. Now, pre-lunar wave what were you looking for what was your approach were you just still almost ufo hunting at that point just you wanted to see what what cool stuff is is up there that you obviously had already seen and like wow that's that's interesting i want to see more of this yeah you know we were aware of chemtrails i was aware that we were always seeing things like orbs and other things and i had years before taken a really crappy little consumer grade digital camera and just pointed at the sky and I would always pick up things, but the camera quality was so poor, you couldn't really tell what we'd picked up. So for the most part, I was shooting the moon when it was well lit, looking for transits, but I was also, you know, scoping around on things like Jupiter and Saturn, whatever was, was in the area. Um, basically looking at everything, but concentrating on the moon at that point. And what was making you concentrate on the moon? bringing you up to the point where you captured the first lunar wave when i captured the lunar wave i was actually still had the black triangles that we'd visually seen in mind and that's the kind of thing i wanted to capture on film so i could review it here's the issue if something is in the sky at night and it's not lit the only way you're ever going to see it is with a very specialized camera system you know ir or uv or something like this a FLIR system or who knows or you're going to have to catch it backlit uh, with the moon. And so, you know, there's really not a lot of options there. So that's basically why I was doing it. And then you didn't see the lunar wave in real time. You you caught that later, right? Like looking back on footage? No, what actually happened was, and, and it's a weird clip. You'll notice in the beginning of the clip, I pan below the moon. Uh, when I shoot, I almost always, I mean, like 98% of the time, try to stay centered on the moon because I don't want to miss anything because you're sitting there for hours and you don't want to pan off the moon and then miss something. Uh, my wife does it differently. She pans all over the place. Um, but what happened was 
I was on the moon for whatever reason. I panned below the, the moon and you can see the lunar wave start. I didn't notice it. And I panned the camera above the lunar wave and the lunar wave catches up to the camera. And then I saw it. My first reaction was, is that equipment is failing, but it something didn't sit right with me from the beginning because after it happened, I reached over to delete the clip. And when I reach over to delete a clip, I I delete it like a hundred percent of the time. For some reason I didn't. And then people have heard the story so often, you know, time went by and I kept going back to look at it. I finally deleted it one day. And as I went to bed that night, it all dawned on me all at once that that was absolutely a filmed event. And I went and restored the clip. So, so were you watching it on a bigger monitor? No, I was looking at a three, three inch LCD on the back of a Canon T2i. Wow. So you just kind of barely caught it seeing on that little screen then. Well, I saw it really well um, once I'd panned back up and the wave caught up to the camera. But, yeah, you're looking at a three-inch LCD screen. And so, you know, it just didn't – the first human reaction to most people to see the lunar wave is they try to explain, you know, this has to be equipment or this has – they try to explain it away. It's a common – you know, humans do that because the other option is is a bit more outlandish. If it's not equipment doing this, and this is a filmed event, then what is it? But yeah, when you're looking at that little monitor, you're not getting the greatest look. And like I said, my first reaction was, you know, something's gotta be failing here. And that's weird too, because I'm a digital guy, I have been from since the 90s, and digital things don't fail um, in an organic way like that. You know, you get shredding, you get pixelation, you get things that are very straight edged for the most part. So that's probably um, why it didn't sit well with me for the longest time, as I just wasn't putting one and one together. So was it that night that you went and restored the clip and looked at it and you're like, good grief, this is this is something extraordinary? No, it went on for quite some time, weeks. I don't remember how long, maybe as long as a month or something like that. Um, and I kept going back and looking at it. And, you know, finally, at some point, I just said, oh, I'm going to delete the clip because at the, at the time, saving all the clips I was shooting, it became a hard drive problem um, because I had so many. Um, I needed to review the ones that I'd saved, the ones that I'd made clips out of. And so I just deleted it. And it was that night as I laid down to go to bed, it dawned on me all at once that the camera pan proved it was a filmed event. And then uh, in earnest, the real studying of the clip began and many other people getting involved. So that's how it went. And since we're discussing equipment here, I, I guess it's a fair point to note that shooting HD footage does take up a lot of space, and that's something to bear in mind if you're intending to keep all of your footage for later playback and, and analysis. Uh, make sure that you're taking that into account with whatever system you're going to have. Right. You know, this is the argument for, for uh, 4K. Uh, you step up, you know, the, the better quality your video gets, the more disk space you're going to need. And if you're doing this as much as I was, disk space, you know, I had external hard drives sitting all around and you know i had things stored and backed up everywhere and that you know you got to realize i was only using it wasn't even full frame video on the canon t2i and it was only 16 megapixels so um that is a big concern and i'll give people a tip if you end up filming uh with a telescope and a dslr uh what i do is i monitor it in real time and if i don't see anything in the clip after about five minutes i delete the clip and i reset it um, and that's the whole reason for it, because if you sat down for, say, five or six hours a night and saved every clip you shot, even with a Canon T2i, which isn't that high quality, you're going to be using up gigabytes and gigabytes so quickly. Right. Uh, I've even noticed that shooting uh, just 
stuff with my black magic and all that. So the things to bear in mind here is you're probably going to be shooting minim minimally at like a 1080p resolution, but the amount of megapixels eat up data and then the the sheer resolution. So if you're going from, say, 1080p at 30 frames or 60 frames a second, jump it up to 4K at uh, probably 30 frames a second, I believe, you're talking about a lot more data, which is great for analysis, but it is going to chew through a considerable amount more space, and you have to bear that in mind. Right. If you have the option, here's what I recommend. You want to be shooting with a camera that does full frame, truly full frame video. The Canon T2i that I used was not full frame. Um, you want to shoot at 30 frames or roughly 30 frames a second. There's no reason to shoot at 60 if you're doing the night sky and the moon and stuff. Now, I did shoot at 60 for quite some time while I was shooting the daytime sky. And the reason was is because I was filming things that were going by so quickly that in even at 60 frames a second, you know, you'd get them on one or two frames. So if I'd been shooting at 30 frames a second, I'd be lucky to get a frame. But, you know, that's a valid point, Jason. Uh, there's no reason really to shoot, as far as I can tell, when you're shooting the moon or other things, to shoot at 60 frames a second. I mean, it would be nice to be able to do it if you have the storage space to deal with, you know, all the clips you're going to get. And again, since we're discussing gear here, uh, to explain this to folks, the frames per second referring to is literally how many snapshots in one second the camera is taking for the movement of the image. So... Standard film, like if you go to the movies, normal film is 24 frames per second. It's what gives it that slight motion blur and makes it look realistic to the human eye. 30 frames per second is a step up, looks a little more crisper, and then you're, you're super very... Um, it's kind of hard to describe it, but I guess you'd say very tight-looking video would be 60 frames a second. But again, that's a lot more data. That's that's 60 pictures per second that that camera has to take as opposed to 24 or 30. So again, disk space is a consideration there. Right. And with a lot of DSLRs that I've seen, if you actually do go up to 60 frames a second, the physical dimensions of your frame go down. Um, so I'm shooting at 1080 most times. I think it went down to seven something when I was shooting at uh, 60 frames a second. In my view, it's more important to have a nice big frame running at 30 frames um, than it is to get your 60 frames a second and reduce the actual footprint of the video. Now, this is not always true. If you're filming the daytime sky, I'll tell you flat out, if you do it for any length of time, you're going to realize that there are things at distance that are going by so quickly, they don't even need to hide because they're moving so quickly. In cases like that, you really need 60 frames a second. Now, the other aspect uh, we should discuss here would be megapixels. Now, your T2i, I believe, is, was 16 megapixels, and you have a much uh, more powerful camera now that is uh, does, what, 30 megapixels? 36. 36. So basically what that means is how much data is really there, like how much it's, light it's absorbed, and how much you can zoom in on it before it starts to pixelate out. So obviously at 36 megapixels, Crow can blow up an object on his screen when he's doing analysis, and there's going to be a lot more data there for him for him to see, with the, you know, looking at it with his eyes, than at 16 megapixels. So that's something else to bear in mind when you're buying a camera. These are all factors you have to consider. Right. So to make it a simple conversation, this is how I view megapixels. You're going to have a better image, but when you're in the editing room and you want to zoom in on something, that's really where you're paying the dividends. And so people can go to my YouTube channel and check out what the difference is. If you look at my early things that I've filmed, um, 
from like March of 2014, where the UFO or the uh, the orb fires the into the chemtrail. Um, that's with 16 megapixels. There's another clip I have up that was uploaded on October 10, 2014, called Crystal Clear Moon Object. Um, that was shot with high megapixels on my Nikon, 36 megapixels, and you can instantly tell the difference. You can see what it does for you, and you can tell when I'm editing, the zoom is nice, crystal clear. And I think the, the most modern cameras that just came out, they're up to 50 megapixels, if I remember correctly, right? Right. I think Canon, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I, you know, Nikon and Canon are always acting like they're racing. I think Canon came out with 51st. And actually, when I bought my full spectrum camera, which is only 24 megapixels, um, I was going to get the 50 meg um, model that had just come out and have that converted to full spectrum. Uh, but I started reading in user groups that there was a problem with the video that hadn't been worked out. Um, they're going to be above 50 here pretty quick. And I'm not, I would have to look. I mean, when you're talking about 4K video, I would have to really dissect, you know, once you get up to 4K, how many megapixels you really need to start to get up to the quality I'm getting with 36 on a camera that's not 4K. Right. So are you saying that uh, you can get comparable quality in a non 4K camera just because the megapixels are there to, to be able to enlarge? Well, think about this. When you typically see an HD video on YouTube, it's 1080 uh, pixels wide. 4K implies 4,000 pixels wide. So it's, uh, you know, basically four times bigger. So if you were to shrink that down to 1080 um, and then zoom in, you can see the possibility right there. But it just gives you a frame of reference in your mind, the difference between looking at a frame that's 4,000 wide or uh, 1,080 wide. Um, and, and again, I would really have to look to take this apart. It gets confusing, and when you're looking at a physically bigger frame size, um, there's all these possibilities with zooming in on things and getting nice, crisp, clear imagery in a video that you're making. So I'm not really sure um, where megapixels would fit into that argument. If someone was saying, how many megapixels do I need on a 4K to get comparable to this 36 not 4K camera? I know that's kind of confusing, so maybe we should just move on. <laughs> so anyway, what, um, what would you say is comparable now you started on an eight inch scope with your t2i what did you move up to when you started capturing your, your later uh really awesomely crisp videos so this is an important point to make uh, about telescopes i i loved mead because i had that mead that i bought in the 90s it was made in the united states it's a tank works today as good as the day i've had it i've never even had to collimate it or align the mirrors to get perfect focus it's just been perfect all these years. I went and I bought a 12-inch Mead telescope, and it failed one after the other. But I do have video posted on my channel. Whenever you see video on my channel of the moon looking almost gold, like kind of a gold tan hue, you can, excuse me, tell that was shot with the Mead. The reason I'm making this point is Mead is now made in Tijuana, I believe a Chinese company just bought it, if I'm not mistaken, not too long ago. I don't view them as quality scopes anymore, so I use Celestron. After I sent back the Mead, I got an 11-inch Celestron, um, and then I had the Nikon with 36 megapixels that I was coupling to. So that was the big jump in quality. Now, let's discuss the, the brands here. What Mead and uh, Celestron are the two big names in scopes? 
Yeah, there are others, but um, I'm not even sure I would call Mead a big name now. You know, I still get Sky and Telescope magazine just to monitor what's being pushed. Um, and in a lot of those, you don't even see a Mead advertisement anymore. And they used to have, you know, minimally one full page, if not two or three. So it kind of tells you the state of things. Right now, for my money, if people are new to this game, I would recommend looking at Celestron. Um SCT or Schmidt cast grain style scopes have always been my choice because uh, they're just really good for filming through and ease of use and they have a short tube so storing them is also handy um, but the main thing about the new Celestrons is back in the day when I first got my Mead 8 inch in the 90s and I wanted to align the scope so that it would track the sky there were a few options. You could do a polar alignment, which means you need a wedge and all this specialized equipment to align on the pole star. Um, for astrophotography, you had to do it that way. But for just videoing, you had to locate two, minimally two bright stars or three if you wanted more accuracy, know their name and center them up, tell the scope what you're looking at, go to the next star. That's how you did an alignment. With the modern Celestrons, you basically turn it on, let the GPS do whatever the GPS does, um, and then you point it at, say, the moon and say, track the moon. And it's that simple. You can do the same thing with the sun or any number of things. In other words, you don't have an alignment procedure. So for people who are new to the telescope game, it has gotten so darn simple to get up and running and tracking the sky. Now, optical quality, you're saying the older Meads were really well made, so th there's no comparison today once they started being uh, so outsourced to other countries, and Celestron is still being uh, made in America to, to a very high standard? I'm not actually to to be honest with you, I'm not, I, I think Celestron's made in America. I would have to look, Jason, I'm not sure, but I know certainly uh, that Meade was in Tijuana because as my scope was failing, they were sending guys up from Tijuana into San Diego. Um, Four times they did it to try to fix my scope. Um, the The image quality is damn good. There's not, I mean, maybe even better. I mean, it's it's so good that you can't really tell the difference. Um, you know, you, you, you there's all these things that you'll read about telescopes, like it's coma free to the edge or aberration free. Um, put it this way: if you buy a modern scope, you're gonna get pretty sharp, decent, good, you know, quality videos. So is it the mechanical parts that are failing and the, yeah. the more modern stuff? Yeah, you know, back in the day, it was all made with U.S. steel. People were taking pride in it. Um, even that 8-inch, you know, when I was in my 20s using that 8-inch, I would occasionally set it up by myself because you're always nervous about damaging the scope. Usually I would have someone help me. Um, and that 8-inch is probably, uh, I'm guessing, uh, nearly as heavy as the 11 I have now. Uh, my, the 11 may be a little bit heavier. Um, the point I would make is it was built like a tank. Um, and I would also point out to folks, if you get up in the neighborhood of an 8 or 11 or 14-inch scope, the average person is going to need a hand getting it on the tripod to do it safely to ensure you don't you know, drop your scope or um, you know, push against the tube while it's locked and damage the gears or something. And what are the general sizes you see as far as what someone would have at home? Um, I usually tell people if you're going out to buy your first scope, try to do six inches or better if you think you're going to get into this. Because if you get something smaller, you can 
get great views of the moon and stuff, but you'll outgrow it pretty quick. And, and aperture is really everything because for each inch of aperture you go up on a telescope, it's many, many, many more times in percentage of light you are collecting. Um, the, the jump from an eight to a 12, I would have to look it up, but I think it's hundreds of times or in percent. Um, and again, I would have to look it up, but it's basically a light bucket collecting light bouncing it off a couple mirrors and then focusing it out to a camera or an eyepiece. Um, so minimally, if, if you're just going to shoot the moon, you could do it with two to three inches of scope easy. If you're going to use it as a general purpose scope to look at things like Saturn or try to look at a nebula or a globular star cluster, you're going to really be wanting six inches or better. And And I'm assuming that it's very noticeable once you start trying to film between a six and eight and 11, just how much more you're getting onto the camera for you to even see in post-production. Absolutely. Um, it, it's all about light collection and uh, the more aperture of scope, what, what the astronomers call them is light buckets. So you can imagine it in that way. The bigger around your bucket is, the more light you're going to collect in that bucket. So the moon is obviously a, a big thing that your name is attached to, but what other uh, things in the heavens do you feel deserve some really good attention for people to point their scopes at? You know, I don't think anyone's really done with, you know, like Jupiter or Saturn, uh, maybe even Venus, the things that I did with the moon. Basically, what I did with the moon is I filmed it nonstop when it was nearly full or full. And in astronomy, you're basically taught that the moon is a boring thing when it's full because there's no shadows, so there's no real detail. And so that's probably why I, I caught all the things I did is because most people on a full moon just glance at it and they move on. Um, I think it would be interesting to see people do you know, other planets, other big lights up there uh, in the same way where you just film for extended periods of time. But as we will probably get into as we get down through the list, I think right now, um, if I had to venture an educated guess that the next kind of big deal thing that tells us a lot um, about this place we live is going to be filming the sun at rise and set. Now, what do you mean by that? What, do you, what are you conjecturing that someone might capture if they're doing this kind of work? Well, there's lots of imagery of like a, a a double body, like what you think you're looking at in a video, the bright spot where the sun is, and then there's this other little round looking, you know, dimmer sun. Um, there's a lot of video out there where there's a black dot in the center of the sun. The problem here is I didn't film those. So to look at them and find them interesting is one thing, but until I can replicate it firsthand, having been there, shot the video, understanding exactly how you know this is going on, I can't really say much. But I've noticed for many years that chemtrails um, are covering the sunrise and the sunset. Um, here, where I am in Rhode Island, we have watched for, I don't know, a couple months, and almost every day we will see the chemtrail lines converge from south, north, or straight across the sky to right where the sun's going to go down. I would estimate that maybe one or two days in 30, you have any view at all of the sun going down, and I don't have a good view of sunrise here, but I have you know, been in places where there's a great view of sunrise, and when I took the trip around the United States, drove, you know, over 8,000 miles Everywhere I went, if I was looking in the rear view and the sun was coming up, there was the chemtrail smudge. Might not be a chemtrail in the sky, but right where the sun was coming up, it was smudged out. And every single day on that trip, as the sun was going down, uh, it was smudged out by chemtrails. In my view, 
they're covering something up. I mean, to take that much effort to obscure the sun at these times, um, they must be covering something up. And again, you know, I, I do have on film uh, my solar scope finding like a a refraction or a doubled image of the sun that I was never, I could never satisfy myself to determine whether it was the double stack in the solar telescope that was creating it or whether I was looking at a light reflection or something like that. But um, to, to get back to the point, I think there's something to be found there that's probably on par with filming a lunar wave. Do you have any idea what it might be, what it might demonstrate? Like with the lunar wave, obviously, the thought here is that there's some sort of fakery going on without using specific words like hologram and all that because we really don't know what it is. What do you think we might possibly find to do with the sun? A truer description of what's going on. Uh, in my view, the sun and the moon are both misdescribed. I don't accept the orbital models. I don't accept the distances. Um, so to be short and concise, to get a bit more truth about what we're looking at. Now, whether or not there's technology up in the sky somehow involved. I can't tell you whether or not this double image we see all the time, is it some kind of refraction through the water we think might be where space is? Hard to know. Um, the black dot thing, that's intrigued me for a long time. But again, until I can do that with my own two hands and my own camera, my own scope, um, I can only value it so much because, you know, we all know what YouTube is and there's so many dishonest things going on out there. Not that I'm accusing people of being dishonest. My point here is, is I need to do it firsthand so that I can make definite statements. Now, you, you've conjectured before about the possibility of space not being an empty void, but liquid. What was it that you saw, and I think it was repeated things from when we've discussed this before, that started making you lean towards that uh, direction? And what what's the concept here, there, that there's a literal firmament or barrier that would be keeping the liquid away from the surface of what whatever our planet actually is? Yeah, something like that. I mean, it's a very hard thing to describe. I've had it in my mind since I was a very young person because all the major religions, uh, most of the major religions have the idea of water being separated from water. In the Christian tradition, that thing is called a firmament. Um, what got me going, you know, from, from the outset of realizing that the lunar wave was probably very important, you know, getting far enough into studying the clip and other very smart people studying the clip. Um, you know, it was even named the lunar wave. It has that liquid appearance. But as I began to do defocusing uh, work, and I'd been doing this for a long, long time, um, but as time went on, I kept coming back to it. And you get that appearance that you're looking at a light uh, through water that's being disturbed. And, you know, as, as recent as even a year ago, noticing that if I defocused a bright light in the sky and watched it, it looked like there was almost a current moving in one direction and then moving to another portion of the sky and doing the same thing and noticing that it seemed the current was pushing in the same direction. I've had that experience on nights. Um, that's really what drew me down that road. And of course, as so many are aware, it was finally language that made me announce I thought that it might be correct that, uh, that what we call space is liquid. Now, I had a similar viewing experience when I went to visit Randy last year. We were outside late at night pointing his 4K camera at different objects, the moon and the stars and everything, and he did exactly that. He defocused the camera a little bit, and it literally looked like light coming through water. Now, I don't know enough about the technology, so I don't know if that's just an effect of the lens, you know, everything not being focused properly and the way light's hitting the camera, but I'm assuming that's kind of along the lines of what you're referring to. Yeah, it's exactly it. You can overfocus or you can defocus. Um, in a telescope, 
well, I won't even get into that because it's confusing. The point is, is when you defocus, um, say, a really bright thing like Venus or or maybe Sirius, the star Sirius, which is really bright, um, it gives almost the identical appearance. As a matter of fact, there was after I did the uh, the space might be water clip, and a guy named Brian Mullen, who's uh, an engineer. Uh, I think he released a clip. We did it within 24 hours of each other, I think. And he used science to get there and math. Um, and I used firsthand, you know, filming and all the things that I've explained before. But a guy made a clip where he put an LED bulb in a clear container with water in it and he disturbed it and put an image of a defocused star next to it. And you can, you know, it was a perfect example. You can see exactly what's being talked about at that point. It's almost a one-to-one match. Um, it's that close. So there's, they're so similar that it's, you can draw the conclusion is basically what I'm getting at. Well, it's, it's evidence to pull you in that way. And I always describe it as, you know, for people who have seen in-ground pools at night, um, when you turn on the pool light and then you disturb the water, um, the image that it makes on the floor of the pool, or if there's walls around the pool, that's, you know, verbatim the image that you see. Now, just doing a thought experiment here, how do you think, let's say there is liquid instead of a void, how do you think that would relate to what people are seeing with the lunar wave? You know, it's a good question. <clears throat> if it is correct, um, clearly, I would surmise that, you know, the water is relating to what we're seeing in the wave. But, I mean, think about the last episode we did where we're talking about Admiralty Law and how all of our language is about water. And we were even taking apart some songs like the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. Um, it's easy to see how all these things could relate to a thing like space being water. But, um it's it's another thing altogether to prove it definitively. So the problem here is like when, when I got stuck and I couldn't do anything more with my scope and I took apart the JFK speech um, predicting that if I could find uh, the maritime language in that speech that I would make the announcement. Um, that's not proof positive, but my view, it's, it's pretty compelling. Now, has anything else ever come up with any of the other uh, objects in the sky that are kind of along the lines of the lunar wave, like, you know, from Mars or Saturn or even nebula or anything like that. Has anything ever been captured by you or anyone else that's similar in the fact that you know something is wrong with the with the straightforward image? Um, not that I'm aware of, and this is why I mentioned earlier that I think it would be very interesting if people had the time to just, like, pick, you know, Saturn or Jupiter or anything um, and just film it hour after hour after hour and monitor as you're doing it to see um, if the anomalies that we saw on the moon. The, the problem here is, is when you're looking at the moon, you can pretty much fill the, fill the frame um, that you're filming with the moon. When you start to do things like Jupiter or Saturn, um, unless you are using an eyepiece and a projection system, so you're projecting through the eyepiece into the camera, it's going to be much, much smaller point uh, in the center of your video. So probably a lot more difficult to realize if anything like that is going on. But, you know, I suppose you could get like a 26 millimeter eyepiece and use eyepiece projection into the camera um, to get the image of, say, Jupiter uh, much bigger so that you could have a good view to see if something like this is going on. But again, it takes hours and hours, weeks and weeks. Now, the one I'd, I'd really love to see someone do is Saturn, just because as anyone who is into the kind of things that you and I are very interested in, Saturn symbolism is prevalent for pretty much all of recorded history that we see, that the Saturn symbolism is 
it's frequently interchangeable with the sun, but obviously there's something there that gets tied in with the whole elite and all all of that. I, we, this isn't what the show is about, but there's obviously some significance to the planet Saturn that the elite cling to, and I'd be very curious to see if there's any sort of physical evidence we could discover as to why they're obsessed with it. You know, here's a funny thing, um, and a lot of telescope users out there will recognize it as true right off the bat. So the bigger planets that you just mentioned, one of which is Saturn, uh, the other one is Jupiter, when you look at them through telescopes on a night with really good seeing, you get such great, crisp images. And I'm going to pull this off the top of my head, so the numbers may not be a spot-on match, but Jupiter is roughly... Uh, at times, we are told something like 500 million miles away, Saturn is further. And we're getting these beautiful, crisp, detailed images. Now, when you shoot Mars, which is much, much closer, um, I don't know, I can't pull the distance off the top of my head, I would have to look it up. Um, it is very rare when you can even start to approach the crispness of detail and the focus that you get on these planets that are further away. And I just thought I would mention it because I've always had this experience and i've always thought why it doesn't make any sense mars is so much closer um but anyhow well i'm assuming the uh the mainstream answer would be that mars is supposed to be only slightly more than half the size of the earth and jupiter's like i, I don't remember how many earths fit into a couple hundred if i remember correctly something along along those lines maybe, maybe that's the answer but i'm not entirely certain well let me, i'm doing a quick look up. okay so so i just did a quick look up they're they're claiming it's 225 million kilometers, so what is that, a million-something um, miles, I guess. But, you see, that's my point. Uh, even if we take the, the average estimates for Jupiter, and, and again, I'm guessing, I have looked it up, it's between four and 500 million miles. And uh, I'm doing the conversion from kilometers to miles in my head. I think it's a million point, I don't know, six or seven, uh, if I had to guess. Oh, here it is. Uh, no, there it's not. Um, anyhow, let, let me look it up in miles so I don't have to guess. Okay, so what's it telling me here? I'm not getting a quick return. Anyhow, my point is this. If you're looking at something under 2 million miles to Mars by their estimates, which, by the way, I don't accept, they're lying, um, and then you're being told these other two things, one of which is roughly 500 million miles away, you can focus on so well all this detail and crispness. And look at Saturn, you know, the beautiful division in the rings and all these other things, and that's even way further uh, than Jupiter's 500 million miles. Um, and then we come back to just under 2 million miles, and you can never really, it's very difficult to get good, crisp, focused shots of, of Mars, even with an eyepiece. Really? That's that's the one I hadn't heard before. So maybe Mars might be something that people could uh, take a lot of time to, to film repeatedly every day. It would be interesting because... Um, over the years that I was filming and I'd swing over and look at Mars, Mars changes a lot. Um, the kind of color, uh, the dark spot that's occasionally visible, <coughs> excuse me, visible there. Sorry, man, this weather's playing havoc with my, uh, with my throat. <clears throat> but Mars would be a good choice um, because it does vary in the way it appears over time. That's interesting. Uh, again, uh, Saturn is the one I I'd, I'd personally would love to see more information done on. How good can you get with home equipment that someone might have? How good of an image can you really get of Saturn? What kind of detailing? I mean, I've seen pictures of what people have shot, but what do you think uh, could really be made out of it all, out of that? Um, 
you get, you know, Saturn's one of these things. The first time I had uh, friends over when in the 90s when I had my 8-inch robotic, you know, first scope that was decent, um, a guy from Germany was visiting friends that came over, and we looked at Saturn, and he had me take the eyepiece out of the scope so that he could look because he thought the image of Saturn must have been painted in the eyepiece. And so what I did was I did, I let him look at it and uh, there was a language barrier. He spoke a little bit of English. So I put the eyepiece back in to the scope and I took the tracking off so that now the image is drifting quickly through the eyepiece because the scope's not tracking. But I mean, that tells you something. Um, it was that good that he was pretty sure that what he was looking at must be painted in the eyepiece. Huh, he thought you were faking it. Well, I mean, the first time you ever see Saturn through a telescope, it's a memorable thing. It's quite a thing to see. Do you think there's enough uh, clarity there that somebody with a decent scope and good quality camera could do? Probably not to the level you can with the moon because it's you know right there. But can you get good enough details, in your opinion, that you could do analysis? Oh, yeah. I mean, just do a Google image search. I mean, there's people out there with 16-inch scopes that will, you know, blow your mind with the images they get of Jupiter and Saturn or the lights that we call Jupiter and Saturn. Um, a simple image search in Google, you can put in 8-inch scope, you know, and name one of them, and you'll start to see what people are producing. And a lot of this is dependent on how good the seeing is. In other words, a person, say, in the remote part of Colombia, where there's not a lot of city light or pollution is going to get a way better view than someone shooting from, excuse me, Los Angeles, or maybe someone out in the desert. But nonetheless, do an image search and you'll see it. You know, people get stunning, stunning imagery of these lights. Now, before we get to the top of the hour, and then I, I guess in the second hour, we'll get to the uh, video analysis of, of the things that you've seen and other people have captured. Um, our mutual friend James threw out some questions here. Uh, did you do you see any value in keeping a star and planet journal? Yeah, I do. Um, here's the thing, and this is James Alford, by the way, who runs the Sage Sigma Unbound blog. He uh, he ended up doing a lot of the Hattiebov work for those who follow him or are interested. Um, there's absolutely good reasons to do these things. First off, people who are going to get into this need to teach themselves at least a cursory map of the sky. In other words, the bright stars that are up any given night, you should be able to identify them. Whenever a planet is in view or what is called a planet, you should be able to identify it visually. Um, these are not hard things to do. It doesn't take long. I mean, within a week, anyone who concentrated on it would easily know um, the things that are in the sky for that portion of the year. The reason I think it's a good idea to keep journals or notes or other things is because basically what we're doing here is we're challenging what we've been told. And so in what we've been told there's this whole system that is based on an orbital model that I don't accept. So any bit of data that you do over time and correlate and scrutinize, that's a good thing. Now, um, I'm not exactly sure what he means by this, although I can conjecture, but you explain it to me. He also asked, have you seen any evidence in the geometrical design of the firmament? Yeah, I, I read that question. Um, I, I would have to say no, if I understand what he's asking me, but I'm not sure if James is aware that I did see uh, what's called the arch 
or the vault of the sky, um, which may relate directly to what is called the firmament. I don't know. And I did it looking at the Milky Way on a perfect night here in Rhode Island. Um, if we're talking geometry, maybe that does relate because, yeah, you're seeing an arc. You're literally seeing the Milky Way in front of you arch over your head and then down behind you so you have to turn to see so you are seeing like an inverted bowl shape and i guess that is geometry in a way and that's the kind of uh imagery you see in very clear areas like um say the arizona desert or out, out west like that where there's not a lot of obfuscation of anything there's no light pollution there's really not a lot of uh, physical pollution so you're pretty much just seeing as clear an image as you're going to get of the entire sky and at that point you're really seeing detail that you know you're not going to see in a city basically yeah you're you, you know there there are people living in cities in the united states like new york who may never have really seen a star because the light pollution is so bad or if they have you know on a good night there may be two or three stars that are visible from these cities so yeah it does make a difference the light pollution and the chemtrailing and of course you want if you want to try to replicate what we're talking about here you really want to do it when the moon is new um or not you know in the sky because that will also dim what you were seeing the the brightness of the moon and basically what you're getting at with all of this is that when you had that kind of uh, situation, what you saw definitely resembled the concept of the firmament where it was a physical curved object of some sort, w the way that uh, the sky was being represented to you. You know, what immediately came to my mind was the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, which so many are familiar with. Um, you know, I spent a lot of my life looking for what I consider to probably be old things to read. And if I can remember the line uh, from the Rubiat, it goes something like this. And this inverted bowl that we call the sky under which cooped we crawl living, uh, we live and die, something like that. But he calls it an inverted bowl. And this is just one of endless examples of what may be old writings, hard to know for sure, um, that talk about the vault, the arch, or the dome of the sky. That's very interesting. Yeah. So there it is in, in, in literature. Yeah. I mean, there's there's tons of example people can look up. It was stunning to me because I have been in places like Hawaii where the visibility was incredible. I've been in deserts a lot of times. And in some cases, I was there expressly uh, to look at, at the night sky. And uh, for some reason, uh, I never saw before what I saw on that night. So, you know, part of it could be frame of mind. Um, now when I go out and, and I ever, I have it consciously in my mind, you know, I look, can I see the Milky Way? Is it a very clear night? Can I see it arching above me? And so far I've, I've experienced it once, but you know, now I know it can be done. Now, have you gotten to film? In, in an ideal situation like that, out in the middle of nowhere, gorgeous night sky? Yeah, I, I don't think you can translate it to video. I mean, you're basically looking through a mono eye, a single lens. Um, I thought about it for a long time. How could you possibly get this to translate to video in some way? And maybe I'm not the best guy in the world to do, you know, to try to logic this out in terms of optical you know, what you can optically do, uh, I would need to go out and actually try to film it. Um, but I suspect it would be very difficult uh, to replicate with a camera uh, what your binocular view of your eyes is showing you. Now, what about the moon itself um, being in a crisp, clear sky like that? Do you think you would get considerably better results that you could blow up and, and see better detailing? 
You know, uh, if you're shooting the moon and it's well lit, it's the brightest thing uh, in the sky. And so the main thing about filming the moon, and uh, you know, I'll bring this up now before we get into the second hour. So many people present videos where they're saying, look, the clouds are going behind the moon or the cloud is going behind the sun. Um, these are very bright objects. You need to make sure your exposure is correctly set. If you cannot see detail um, or a crisp edge on the, in the case of the sun or a sunspot while you're filming, and in the case of the moon, you know, there's features on the face of the moon you can see. If you just see a white light, you're overexposed. Anytime you're shooting video that's overexposed, you can't tell anything. You would see a bird fly into one side and it would look like he disappeared into the brightness of the moon and popped out the other side. So people would be saying, look, this bird went behind the moon. It's not the case. So many people get confused when they're filming the sun and the moon um, because they don't have their exposure set. And when I say have it set correctly, you're going to basically be dimming the image down until you can see surface detail on either one of these things. In the case of the sun, it would need to be a sunspot or you would need to have the experience to understand you're not overexposed. In the case of the moon, there is surface detail that will let you know you're not overexposed. If you're filming at a full moon and it looks like a white light, you're overexposed. That isn't going to give you video of value to tell you anything. Um, just wanted to get that in there. Now, that's really important. So, so basically what you're saying is, to boil it all down, is you, you need to have some basic photography skills and understand how to use the equipment that you in particular have to get proper imagery. Right. It's akin to taking an image of a person um, and you've got a light that you're lighting them with to film them, but the light is so bright, you can't see the nose and the eyes. It's just like this big white glare. You've overexposed that person. And so the same is true when you're filming in the sky. Um, you need to have your exposure set and you need to have your focus right. If these two things aren't at least close to correct, uh, the video that you get on the tail end of that's not going to be worth much. And another thing I would mention is you really need to shoot with a tripod if you're using just a camera. So often people send me image of images of the moon with interesting things like a double image of the moon um, or other things in the video, but they're doing a handheld shot. Um, this is problematic. Again, uh, if you don't shoot in the correct way, uh, a lot of times the video you get on the back end is not going to be worth much. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that a lot with uh, people shooting with iPhones or whatever, because obviously there's holding in their hand shooting. And, and the, even a steady hand, it's still going to have jitter. So the value of that is going to be minimalized versus shooting on a decent tripod that's going to hold the image stable for the entire shot. Right. And you'll see a lot of the video that I had where I just didn't have the option or the time to get onto a tripod. There's things you can do. You can find a tree and you can press the camera up against the stable tree or a car or a light pole or a brick wall or anything to, to stable out your shot. Um, in some cases, you just won't have the option and you got to do what you got to do. Um, as a matter of fact, I think some of the shooting orb film that I got earlier before the main clip, uh, I was shooting that handheld um, before I got it on the tripod. And, and the whole thing here is that any object in the sky is going to be moving as well, so you need to have some sort of stability, even like you said, leaning on a tree or a car or something, because you're going to have to track it if you're trying to get it for any length of time. Right. If you're a person who wants to go out and shoot video that could matter, um, you need to keep these things in mind. The problem here is, is that most people 
are usually in a position where they're not filming all the time and they see something that they think is interesting. So they whip out their camera and do what they do. But again, if you have the option and you see something interesting going on, get a tripod, stabilize your camera, be sure you're in focus, be sure your exposure is set correctly. And what you get on the tail end of that will be infinitely more valuable than just a, a random click, click, click. So I think a good way to tie up hour one would be know the equipment that you do have, whatever it happens to be, and you're trying to do this kind of work. Know what you're doing with the equipment you have so that anything you can uh, capture is going to have the the greatest value in the end. Right, and you don't need to be a camera expert. I mean, we're talking about basic, simple functions here. Um, setting your aperture correctly so that your exposure is correct um, and getting your focus right and stable shooting, you know, with a tripod or otherwise. And anyone who's going to do this over a period of time, trial and error will get you there pretty quick too. You just have to do the best you can uh, to get video of quality. You've got to realize that People started to really, I started to get a real cult following, so to speak, early on because people were astounded by the quality of the video I was shooting. You've got to realize I was using a Canon T2i that's not even full-frame video with only 16 megapixels um, through an 8-inch telescope. The 8-inch telescope played a huge role there, but the the quality that I was getting from that camera isn't even in the same ballpark as what I shoot now. And yet, at the time, what was getting me noticed was people were not used to seeing quality at that level. Um, So you've always got to keep it in mind. The better the quality of your video, the more value it will will have if you shoot something. And not only that, the more interested people will be in it um, because of the quality. Sure, if this is something you want to do, get a YouTube channel, start posting clips. Obviously, you have to have uh, something of value to put up in the first place. And you were the earliest person to really start doing some very unusual stuff out there that got noticed. So, you know, you built up from there, and and this is something anyone can do. You you started with, I don't even want to say minimal equipment, it's actually pretty decent equipment, but what you've moved up to is uh, quite phenomenal. And, uh, you know, anyone out there can do this for a a relatively minimal uh, investment, and we're going to get to that in hour two. Right. Also in hour two, we're going to name some of the clips of interest I've shot. Um, And just to do a spoiler here, we're going to talk about the Vortex that Croak filmed. Uh, We'll talk about the lunar wave when I finally discovered there was an energy pulse in it. Um, We'll talk about the clip I made to show that the lunar wave is displacing the entire image of the moon. We're going to talk about the orb that fires that plasma-looking thing into the chemtrail. Uh, We'll talk about a couple of the unknown crafts, that weird-looking kind of thruster craft that I filmed uh, when it wasn't quite dark. The clip that I shot where there's these strange lunar pulses and lights coming off the moon, uh, then something about satellites and a little bit about the little black objects that I filmed, and there will be another chemtrail uh, clip included in there. Those are some of the things we're going to break out. We'll name them by title and upload date uh, in YouTube. I'll put the links down, but that's just a small portion of what we're going to be covering in the second uh, hour. Also, as it warms up, you know, the interest of people wanting to film has really exploded. So um, I urge everyone, even if you can just get your hands on a camera, whatever equipment you can get, do what you can do. As you do it, your experience will guide you. And who knows, maybe you'll be the person that produces the next piece of footage that just, wow, uh, look what we know now that we didn't know yesterday. Anyhow, Jason, anything to add? 
Yeah, it, for folks out there who want to get involved with this, pick one of the other planets or objects so that we have people coming at these things from different uh, perspectives. Lots of people are doing the moon, but come on, folks, someone out there do Saturn. Let's let's see it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Jason, as I start shooting again this summer or this spring, um, as Saturn becomes one of the objects that's in the sky, maybe I'll take some time to to get some footage. Anyhow, that brings the first hour of episode 47 of Crow 777 Radio podcast to a close. Uh, the second hour will be posted on Crow777Radio.com. By the way, the new site should be done this month, and I hope to see you all over there. Uh, the second hour is posted for members. Thank you. Thank you.